Our Father, it is only by sovereign grace that we can sing those words. That it is well with my soul. Because you hold us fast. Because Christ, you are even now in the presence of the Father for us, making intercession for us. Because the work of your atonement was complete, you offered one sacrifice for all time. There is nothing else that can be given for our sin because you fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. Every condition of the covenant for us so that we stand in you justified, counted righteous. We stand in you complete and secure if we truly stand in you. We belong to you. And we give you praise for all that you have done for us. And all of eternity, with all of our hearts, will never exhaust the riches of your glory and grace. And we will never tire of delighting in it and delighting in you. And, oh God, will you make that more and more and increasingly so our experience here. Small indeed, compared to what it will be. But let it ever be increasing. May you become ever more glorious in our hearts and grace ever more wonderful and our sin ever more abhorrent and your truth ever more the foundation on which we stand and your return the hope that our hearts more and more long for. Do this by the work of your spirit. We thank you for your grace to us and we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you'd open up your Bibles again to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Yes, we hear the voice of our sovereign Lord in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so he speaks to us in all of God-breathed scripture. And so open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 as we're coming near uh, to the end of this book. It's been a wonderful uh, study and we still have several weeks to go. But we find ourselves again in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and and Ecclesiastes chapter 10, as I mentioned last week, is uh, essentially a collection of a contrast of statements that contrast wisdom and foolishness. The context is that of the royal court, of, of government, of civil authority, of the wisdom or foolishness of our leaders and the effect it has on those whom they lead and whom they are entrusted with giving oversight and governance and so forth. And so that is the context of much of uh, Solomon's letters, which makes sense since he was the king of Israel, and that is his own context. And so that's where we often find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet the principles that define what is wise and foolish within a government context and within the context of civil authority are the same principles that govern all of life in God's moral universe. He created all things. He created all things ultimately to be an expression of his glory and for us to function as his image bearers, to worship him and to live in line with his character and so forth. And so that is the goal of all of creation. And, and there, is a, there is a moral principles built into the very fabric of creation uh, that uh, cannot be ignored without consequences. And, and so the principles that he lays out here, as we'll see, is, and hopefully we begin to see last week, apply to all of us, though the context is in the royal court. And so I titled this section, chapter 10, under two big, broad headings. One is simply the contrast of wisdom and foolishness, and the other one was related to our hope. And so we skipped things around a little bit last week, and we jumped to the end because it was appropriate to do so in the Lord's Supper. But we're going to go back into the middle and pick it up again with Solomon's contrast of wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. We certainly see 
both throughout the history of the world and in our own lives, both personally and when we act wise and times when we act foolish. And we certainly see it in our government leaders, both the wise and the foolish. But read with me uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I'll begin in verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is said in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes, walking like slaves on the land. And he who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words of the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. And woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine, and makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. And there is then Solomon's contrast of wisdom and foolishness in the lives of God's image bearers, in the lives of God's civil servants, the rulers whom he has placed over us through civil authority. And so we noted first last week this observation as we were making uh, the observations that Solomon draws us to throughout. The first observation was this, that when we are in the, the presence of a ruler and of authority, that we are to keep our composure and our conviction, even if that ruler is a fool. Uh, simplified, it was this, keep your composure and conviction in the presence of a fool. He says that in verse 4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure lays great offenses. And the principle simply is there, hold to your conviction, hold your composure, don't be wavering, don't compromise. Even if you are in the presence of one who has authority and yet does not fear God and is foolish, because that in the end is the way to wield influence and to hold your integrity. And so that was the first observation. The second was this. Wisdom is not always honored because power can reside in the hands of a capricious and foolish ruler. Wisdom is not always honored because power can reside in the hands of a capricious and a foolish ruler, an erratic ruler, an unpredictable ruler, one who is unstable in all of his ways. 
And unfortunately, as we noted last week, that the history of man, both in our present times, but throughout the history of man, we've seen a great balance, uh, or the the scales tip uh, much in the favor of the foolish rulers. There have been wise rulers, there have been good kings, there, there have been and there are, but overall, what we see is the tendency towards foolishness, the rejection of God, a rejection of righteousness, which ultimately has led to the downfall of even the greatest nations the world has ever known. Greed, a love for power, rampant immorality, all kinds of weakness within the nation itself ultimately is what led to its demise. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, and the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. And unfortunately, because of the fall and because of sin, foolishness is the overreaching principle, arching principle that resides in the heart of man and leads them always towards what is, in the end, to their own destruction. And so that was the second observation. The third observation is this, and this is where we pick it up this morning. And that is that wisdom brings success, but foolishness brings destruction upon itself. Wisdom brings success, but foolishness brings destruction upon itself. And that's where we pick it up in verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones will be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Now, the context here is of foolish rulers. But when we come to these illustrations, there's two ways that we can understand uh, Solomon's intent uh, through these illustrations. One is to say that foolishness and the unexpected make wisdom vulnerable. And we noted before earlier at the end of chapter 9 and coming into chapter 10 that that is a part of what Solomon means to communicate that wisdom is vulnerable, that wisdom can bring success, wisdom is the better position, wisdom can deliver a city not by the might of a sword but by the mere might of wisdom itself and yet it can all be undone by a little bit of foolishness. And that's what he said at the end of chapter 9. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then he gives the illustration of a dead fly and a perfumer's ointment. And so there is one way to take this is that that foolishness and the unexpected make wisdom vulnerable. And so both of those are points that Paul has, uh, I keep saying Paul, Solomon uh, has made clear to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. That we don't know the future and foolishness can uh, destroy much good. Another way to take it is this, is that foolishness bears its own consequences. In other words, as you have foolish leaders and those in power who demonstrate folly rather than wisdom, that the consequence of that is that their own lack of the fear of God and their own consequences of that, which is living unwisely, brings with it its own consequences. In other words, foolishness brings its own suffering. And although both are true, I think the emphasis falls probably on the latter. Namely, that foolishness brings its own consequences. That's the idea of these illustrations. So he who digs a pit may fall into it. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who breaks through a wall, a serpent may bite them and so forth. Those are certainly things that could happen in the normal course of life. Definitely, they don't require wisdom or foolishness. It's just about living in a fallen world and natural evil happens. But the context here, again, is very specifically that he's referring to rulers, and the illustration is meant to pick up what he has just said, that when you have foolish rulers, everything is turned upside down. You live in a, in a kingdom and in a society and in a culture and in a world where things are not as they should be. 
Not as God designed them. In circumstances where, where the flourishing that God intended, the order and the stability of a society that God intended is not present. And you have things that are upside down, things that are unstable, things that are chaotic. And so these illustrations then are continuing that thought. It's not uncommon, metaphorically, for some of these statements to be used, as a matter of fact, to speak of the kind of the consequences that come upon the foolish. One of the most common that we're aware of is the one who digs a pit may fall into it. Very often, God uses that same imagery to speak of the foolish who intend harm to the righteous and yet end up being harmed by their own plans. Let me give you just one example. Uh, Psalm 7, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Psalm 7, verses uh, 15 and 16, he says, He is, well, let me go to verse 14. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. In other words, it will come back upon him. So that is certainly common imagery here that Solomon seems to be drawing on at some level, but it, namely this, simply that wickedness brings its own consequences. And so him who goes and foolishly makes plans and foolishly tries to uh, accomplish a goal, uh, who tries to move forward, but does it rather in their own strength and their own wisdom, is certainly to meet not success but failure. So... The one who digs a pit foolishly will fall into it. The one who breaks through the wall will end up being bit by a serpent. The one who quarries stones will end up having the stone falling on him and bringing harm to him. The idea then is the foolish move forward in confidence only to be caught in their own foolishness. He picks this up in another way in Proverbs 4.19, that the way of the wicked is like darkness, like darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble The way of the wicked is like darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble. There is a sense in which this displays that moral and viable principle that Paul laid down for us in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, The one who sows to the flesh, can you repeat it? From the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's an inviolable rule of the universe. It's as, it's as certain as gravity. It's as certain as if you walk outside and jump off a building, you're going to hit the ground very hard. The same is as if we choose to live foolishly. If we, we choose to live and sow to the flesh, then we will most certainly have consequences of that. And positively, if we choose to sow to the Spirit, then we will have the consequences there of life and peace and of blessing and of wisdom and a path that is lightened more and more by the Spirit of God working in our life. In Proverbs 5.22, again, he says, His iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held in the cords of his sin. And that is precisely what we see happening here with those who are foolish rulers. And there's a sense a very real sense in which Solomon provides an illustration himself of what he's saying. You, you see it? Solomon was one of the wisest men that the world has ever known. He had intellectual powers that are an envy to many of us. He had wealth and he had opportunities for every kind of pleasure that he desired in this world. There was nothing that was refused to him. There was nothing beyond his ability to enjoy anything that he desired. He, endure, he enjoyed it. 
He had a kingdom that was largely knew nothing but peace and flourishing and abundance so that silver was almost counted as valuable, uh, not very valuable because of the abundance of gold and other precious stones that were there. He had popularity among the nations. He had honor among other nations. And yet, Solomon was a fool. He sowed to the flesh and ultimately thinking that There would be no ultimate consequence, and yet his life ended not with glory, but with a sadness, but with judgment, with condemnation. His reign was largely marked by wisdom and prosperity, but in the end, he was spiritually foolish, and the result were weak alliances, fickle commitment of the people, and a kingdom that split through the foolishness of his son, Rehoboam. You remember the account, don't you, in 1 Kings chapter 11. Let me just remind you of it. 1 Kings chapter 11, after God had confronted Solomon because of his heart that had strayed to other gods because of his many wives, he said this to him, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. He says, I'm not going to do it in your days out of a mercy But I will do it, he says. I will give one tribe to your son, in verse 13, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. As the story goes on, Solomon dies. A prophecy is made to one named Jeroboam that he was actually going to have some of the kingdom and lead them. And then there was Rehoboam, though, at the time, that sat on the throne, having come after his father and inherited the rulership, the kingship of Israel. And the people come to Rehoboam, if you remember the story, and they say, hey, your father made things very hard on us. It was very difficult. It is a load we cannot bear. If you will lighten our load, if you will listen to our burden, if you will have compassion on what we are asking to you, we will serve you faithfully. You will be our king. We as a united kingdom will come under your leadership. We will follow your instructions. Solomon, or Rehoboam, however, being a youth, Being and having the foolishness of youth gets counsel from the older men and the elders who were alive during Solomon's reign. And they said, listen to the people. This is a good thing. Show them compassion. Be merciful to them and they will serve you. This is how you will strengthen the kingdom. This is how you will solidify your rule. This is how you will have influence on the nation. Ah, But Ray Rome didn't care for that too much. Because he was into strength. He was into showing who was the boss in the situation. He was the one who was to show who's who. And so he goes to his friends and his peers. And essentially they say, don't listen to them. If you were to summarize it, you're the boss. You tell them, look, if you're going to complain, I'll make it harder. And so Rehoboam does. He goes back and he tells the people. After they had come back to them, he said, go away. Come back and I'll give you my decision. They came back. And that is precisely what he did. He said, no, far from making it lighter, I will make it harder on you. He says, you shall speak to them. They said, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And what happened? The king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, and the Lord, that the Lord spoke through a high, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Basically... He acted like a fool. Basically, he acted like one who ignored the instructions of God. He did not fear God, and the result was that the kingdom split, 
and it began generations from that point of, in large measure, hostility between the southern tribes and the northern tribes and ultimately into exile for both of them in the course of history. In other words, the foolishness is going to come back on your head. It's going to have consequences. You cannot escape this reality. If you're going to choose to walk in pride and lack in the humility of before God and to rule the people well and with wisdom, then you will fail. And unfortunately, Solomon, who writes these words, also illustrates them as well. And then he says this in verse 10 along the same line. He says, if an axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. And the idea of foolishness here is that wisdom or foolishness, though unsuccessful, continues along the same course. It doesn't, it doesn't learn from experience. It doesn't learn the fool from a counselor. It doesn't learn from its own burdens of the consequences of its foolishness. It just keeps going the own, its own course. Uh, if the axe is dull, he does not sharpen its edge. But he keeps chopping. He keeps at the wood. He doesn't take time to... Use the stone to sharpen the blade so it will go faster. He can be more productive with the effort that he's putting in and the time that he's putting in. No, he doesn't want to pay attention to those things. He's just going to keep cutting with a dull axe and wasting time and tiring himself out. Why? Why would someone do this? Well, there are many reasons. It could be that they're too proud to change course. Solomon said earlier in Proverbs 12, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And so the fool, far from saying that they were wrong, is going to continue in the fact that they're right and going to continue on in foolishness. Going to keep chopping with a dull axe. Could be they're just simply too proud. It could be that that one lacks self-control and is driven by greed and doesn't want to take the time to listen or to change course or to sharpen the axe. He says again, Solomon does in Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will go unpunished. It could be out of greed. It could simply be out of pride. It certainly is out of pride, but the point is, is they keep going on a foolish course. In other words, the fool does not learn from mistakes, from others, or from consequences. We can certainly see that in our leaders, but we would ask, how much do we see that in our own lives? Do we learn... From others? Do we learn from the counsel of others? Do we learn from our own mistakes? Do we learn from God's discipline in our lives? Or do we just keep going, expecting there to be a different result? You know, one of the definitions of insanity, right? Right. One of the, is that you keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Uh, have you heard that? Okay, there it is. All right. So that would be a foolish person, right? An insane person, but a foolish person who keeps doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, not taking the time to consider, consider their actions. As a matter of fact, as Proverbs says, or Solomon says earlier in Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard, and yet how often we remain in the course of foolishness and return to those things that we know ultimately have no profit. Proverbs 26 says this, 26.11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Peter will repeat that in 2 Peter chapter 2, 
Speaking of the false teachers who, having escaped the corruptions that were in the world by an initial profession of faith, end up, because there was no internal change, there was no actual experience of regeneration, end up going back to their same immorality and their same greed. And he, picking up on this proverb, says, they are like a dog that returns to its own vomit. A, a gross illustration, and yet uh, true, and yet true. And with this illustration, then he concludes in verse 11, and he says... It concludes as he began really in verse 8 with a picture of a serpent. He says in verse 11, If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. I don't know why, but one of our children recently were looking at one in India charming a snake, a cobra, uh, on YouTube. Because uh, you can find everything on YouTube. And I asked them why they were doing that. They didn't answer. But I did learn this, apparently, out of this whole exploration is that it, the music actually wasn't, isn't charming the snake, they, they said. Now, I didn't go and verify this, but they said the music isn't actually, oh, I think I know which one it was. They're looking at me. Uh, it didn't actually charm the snake. They didn't know why it was, so however that is. But the point is, uh, whatever that was worth, uh, is that the idea here, the illustration, is that uh, using that, if the snake isn't charmed, then it's very dangerous. If you don't somehow distract it, if you don't somehow try to direct its course, it's going to attack you and it can kill you. It's a, it's a potentially dangerous situation. And again, the idea you can see is that of foolishness of the one who lacks preparation. And really the more significant essential idea is that the self-will and arrogance of the foolish will bring them harm. Again, that's the idea. The self-will and arrogance of the foolish will bring them harm. The fool rushes in. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty will come to poverty. Now, this is true in life. Scripture is not a self-improvement book. This isn't a Tony Robbins' version of how to live life well and wisely and successful. Everything within Scripture and the idea of wisdom and foolishness is a direct consequence of the heart of whether one fears God or whether one does not fear God. And so while Solomon makes these or gives these illustrations that certainly have application to the consequences of life, whether we're successful or whether we're not, the most significant application is this, is our response to spiritual wisdom. Because essentially, wisdom or foolishness is our response to God. Our response to his revelation, our response to what he says is right and wrong, our response to what he says it means to live righteously in this world, or whether we ignore it. So the application here, and more significantly and more poignantly, would be this, the one who thinks they have it figured out, who comes to Scripture as a help and will go with Scripture as long as it agrees with their idea of how things are, but parts ways whenever it confronts their ideas of this world and how to be successful in what is important. It's not the one, the one who says, I come, I acknowledge the Bible as truth, but I don't stand on it and breathe it in and abide in God's word as the very source of truth and foundation of life. And so I'm hasty in my decisions. I'm hasty in the way that I approach life. I'm hasty in the decisions we make. But the ultimate expression of this, well, there's many, but could really be summarized in the Lord's words himself. Don't turn there. Let me just remind you of this and... I'm going to move on to the next point, but here. So foolishness, yes, if you're foolish and you make foolish decisions, then there's going to be a lack of productivity with your life. That's true. But the more essential point here is that there is a failure to respond to God's revelation, to fear Him, to know His blessing. If there is a failure to 
have a receptive heart to the truth of God, then there are going to be consequences, and that's the more significant. And this is how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, he says there, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. So the essential point is this. You're wise when you hear God speak and you respond. When the words of God have an influence on your life, indeed the greatest influence on your life. You are a fool if you listen to the words of God and like one who looks in the mirror forgets what they saw and they go off and live in contradiction to the truth that they've been exposed to. And now we all can feel that, don't we? Because there's a lot of times we all act like fools. And we don't listen to God's instruction and we do what we know God is not going to be pleased with because we're selfish and rebellious and even in a believer there is that principle that resides in us. But in a believer it is a lessening reality in their life. It is one they hate and they fight and by the spirit are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. But nonetheless we know this reality. The ultimate expression of it is the fool who just assumes salvation or just assumes the gospel without taking any concern to the reality of an obedient heart, of a truly believing heart, and they end up in the words that Jesus said just before that, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That would be the ultimate, the ultimate failure to heed the wisdom here, to rush into life, to rush into to an idea of what spiritual life is built on our own thinking, our own thoughts, neglecting the revelation of God in Christ, neglecting the truth of Scripture, of going into life and using Scripture more as a self-help book rather than the light to our path, the, the truth that should renew our mind and shape our affections. And so we want to ask God to give us wisdom. Let me note quickly here another observation. Uh, he says, that, and the observation is this, verses 12 through 14, foolishness does not keep the foolish from speaking. Foolishness does not keep the foolish from speaking. Don't we know that? He goes and he says next, as another observation between contrasting foolishness and wisdom, in verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Again, the idea of sin bringing its own consequences. Verse 13, the beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go into a city. So Solomon here then addresses one of the greatest evidences of whether we're wise or foolish, our speech. Our words. The things that we say. Again, we're familiar with this throughout Scripture, but probably what comes to your mind are the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. The mouth speaks out of what? The abundance of the heart, right? The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. Whatever is filling our heart is going to eventually come out that little hole in the front of our face, our mouth, and be driven by our tongue. And that's what he says here. If one's heart is wise then the words that come out of the mouth will direct them toward the right and will direct others towards the right. It'll bring healing. It'll bring truth. It'll bring wisdom. It'll bring help. 
If the heart of someone is foolish, then it won't. It'll sour the situation. It'll corrupt the conversation. It'll corrupt the environment. Why? Because the person is foolish. And that's what they're going to bring forth out of their mouth is foolishness. We're again familiar with the words of James, that if anyone is able to bridle the tongue, he's a mature man. He's a mature person. Why? Because the condition of our heart is going to be most evident in the words of our mouth. And by the words of our mouth, I don't mean good words and bad words, four-letter words and not four-letter words. That's pretty basic. The words of our mouth in tone, in gossip, in what they tend to, the effect they tend to produce in the conversation and in relationship. They can be words of impatience, with an impatient tone. When we were in marriage counseling uh, long ago with a couple of uh, the church we came from, uh, this, this older, wiser couple said to us, you, you know that you've said something wrongly. And the church actually reminded me of this yesterday. <laughs> to which I had to repent. Uh, but they said this, uh, if anything that you say could be easily followed with you stupid idiot, then you've probably said it in the wrong tone. So I said something, and she said, you stupid idiot. <laughs> and, and I was humbled. But the point is, is that our speech is far more than simply the words that we use. It's whether they speak truth, whether they communicate grace, what the tone of them is, the effect that they have on other people. And that's always going to be the mark and the measure of our maturity. Solomon puts it in these very grave words, Proverbs 18, 21. He says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words have amazing power for good or for evil. They have an amazing power to build up and to strengthen or destroy and to tear down. They have an amazing power to make truth clear and acceptable and something that's helpful or to make it something that's condemnable or to make it something that actually misleads. Words have amazing power. It just relates to the very nature of God who begins scripture with God said. By the word of his mouth, the host of the heavens were made. Christ is the eternal word of God. He spoke words of truth. All of scripture is about God communicating in words for our good, for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our hope, for our encouragement, for our correction, for our training in righteousness to rebuke us and reprove us and so on. God interacts with us because relationship is built on the reality of words, on the reality of communication, on how we speak. And so... We can't hide whatever is in our heart. Eventually, it's going to come out. Oh, we can conceal it and constrain them for a moment, and we should. But ultimately, the condition of our heart is going to come out in the, the general pattern, the overall effect of our words and of our lives on other people. Words are extremely important because they reflect our heart. And so there's a lot that Solomon has to say in Scripture for that matter. On words, let me just give you a, a few. Wise speech then is to be gracious speech. And just listen. I just want to I want to read them just so you can get a feel of it overall. So I'm just gonna go through it. But just listen. This is wise speech, a contrast of wise and foolish speech. In the realm of truth, Proverbs 8, 7, for my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Twelve Proverbs twelve nine. These are all out of Proverbs. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. 
If we tell a lie, it may leave a situation, a situation in that moment, but it will come back and we will bear the consequences. A wise tongue has self-control, a foolish tongue doesn't. Proverbs 10:19, when there are many, where then there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He says in other places that the words of the fool are like the thrust of a sword. They bring harm and destruction. We're not going to go off on this, but the idea of venting, don't raise your hand if you do say you do that. We don't vent as if whatever is in our heart in terms of criticism and frustration needs to have an outlet with our mouth, as if that's wise. Or I'm just being honest uh, is often a covering for just being selfish and rude. No, we're, we're to guard our words. We shouldn't say everything that comes to our mind. That's not a matter of uh, courage and of deep honesty. It's a matter of foolishness most often and selfishness. So self-control is a part of wise speech. Edification. It should build others up. Proverbs 25, 11, Like apples of gold and setting of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. They should be humble, our speech. Proverbs 11, 2, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. And it will show in speech. Why speech can give comfort. Proverbs 16.24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb. Sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. They give instruction. Proverbs 1.8. Hear my son your father's instruction. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. They give encouragement. Proverbs 10.11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. They give rebuke at the proper time. Faithful words. Proverbs 27.6. Faithful wounds are as faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend is the one who will tell you when you're doing wrong. When you have lettuce stuck in your teeth, when you are behaving badly, the things you don't want to hear and that are hard to say, that's a friend. Restoration, uh, wise words brings restoration. Uh, Proverbs 12, 18, there is, only, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of the sword, I mentioned this earlier, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It brings healing in relationships. It brings healing to a body. It brings healing in an environment. Not further division. If there's one thing that we see in our public discourse is exactly the opposite of this, isn't it? Everything said seems to be intended to provide division, to create hostility, to create factions, to create opposition with one another, a kind of self-destruction of society. That's not wise speech. It brings healing. Wise speech brings peace. Proverbs 3.17, her ways are pleasant ways, speaking of the wise or wisdom, and all her Peace. Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Paul says, remember in Romans 12, as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. That doesn't mean wisdom is always going to bring peace and healing in relationships, but that is the general pattern of the way the world works, that it will. Understanding. Proverbs 2, 6, this is the last one. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. 8, 14, counsel is mine and, and wisdom, and I, understand, and, and I am understanding, and power is mine. Wisdom speaking in a personified voice. Proverbs 8, 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Well, we've experienced that, haven't we? I've been guilty of that. We all probably have it to some degree. But Paul, but Solomon summarizes all of that into this, this uh, 
the statement that brings it all together. And he says this in verse 12. The words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. The words of a wise man are gracious. One summarized his point here in this way, worth repeating. The point of the verse then is not that wise speech will get us something from other people, namely their favor, but they will enable us to give something to other people, namely the gracious love of God. And so the idea of a, of a wise person who has gracious speech is one who speaks to give, to give truth, to give rebuke, to give comfort, to give encouragement, and so on down the line. Not to receive things, adulation, the admiration of other people, and so on and so forth, or whatever. The point is, is that gracious words are the fruit of one who has experienced and has a gracious heart who has experienced the grace of God in the heart, who has experienced the truth of God, who has experienced the redeeming grace of God, who has experienced the forgiveness of God, who has experienced these things, the fruit of that is necessarily going to be that it results in gracious speech. And it is the hallmark of wisdom. And Solomon summarizes all of or that, that in the book of Proverbs. It's summarized... It wasn't Solomon who wrote this, but in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, in the wise woman, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongues. But we have to stop here. And there's, it need to, we need to have a caveat. What, what does it mean then? And we, we, read, we read that earlier, actually, with the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4, that we were to have gracious speech, speech seasoned with, with grace, with salt, as it were. But what does that mean to have gracious speech? Because we can overly sentimentalize this concept, can't we? As we do with a lot of other things. We can, we can make it a little bit more gracious than what God intended by here. That is to go off course of what he intended. Let me give you just one example before I say more. The greatest example, who would be the greatest, okay, pop quiz. Who is the greatest example of gracious speech? It's Jesus Jesus is the greatest example of greatest speech. He had no sin. Everything he said was perfectly truthful, perfectly holy, perfectly good, etc. And so when Jesus, if you'll remember in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning near the, the front part of his ministry, he was teaching in a synagogue. And they said at the end in Luke chapter 4, they said this of him. They said all were speaking, Luke 4.22, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. He was talking about salvation. He was talking about the goodness of God, the, his redemption that had appeared in the person of Christ. He was relating that to himself and, and essentially declaring that I am the Messiah, I am the fulfillment of that promise. Today, this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were like, oh, this is great. I love this guy. Let him come back next week as a guest speaker. But what happens is we continue to read through Luke chapter 4. Then he realizes that there's a problem they had. They still didn't understand the nature of God's redemption, the nature of the covenant, or even the nature of their Messiah and his ministry. And so Jesus comes back and he puts his finger on the issue, on the issue that he knew was in their heart, where he knew there was error and was wrong. And he says, oh yeah, and let me tell you a couple of stories that you'll remember from the Old Testament in your Bible. Let me tell you some stories where God paid attention to the Gentiles and he didn't pay attention to the nation of Israel because of their sin. Let me tell you that story. And he says, I tell you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came all over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the, name, in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, the ruler of a pagan army. He was healed, not the ones of Israel. And then what did they want to do? Well, the people in the synagogue, it says, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they went and they took him together collectively and were going to throw him over a cliff. And in the divine providence of God, he protected him and Jesus walked out and escaped. What happened, who knows? But he did. So Jesus, in one minute, is being praised for his gracious speech. And in the next minute, is there wanting to throw him off of the cliff. What is the point of saying that? Jesus spoke truth in its entirety, not merely what would be appreciated and accepted. That's the point. Gracious speech does not compromise. It doesn't mean we only say nice things that will make everybody in the room happy. It doesn't mean that we only speak the things that everybody will agree with and say, isn't that nice? I really like that person. And afraid to say anything that might cause them to dislike us. In other words, graciousness is bound. Gracious speech... And we know this, but let me, it's bound to the truth. It's bound to the truth. And the highest end of our speech, and if we could get this, it would be helpful. The highest end and the highest goal of our speech is not to be liked, but to speak the truth. To speak what would end, would end uh, have as its end the glory of God and the good of that person. And the good of that person is not helped by compromise, by a lessening of the truth. We're helped when people speak truth to us that tell us the hard things. Hopefully they do it graciously. Hopefully they do it, and we all fail in this area. But hopefully the overall pattern is that it's gracious, that it's gracious. But we can't expect then that means that everybody is just going to like us. This is the case again in evangelism and interaction with the world. To the Colossians, again, Paul writes what we morning when speaking with unbelievers let your speech always be with grace so that you will know how to respond to each person when we speak with gracious speech in the world then it opens doors for the gospel people don't see you as merely against them or merely trying to win an argument or merely to condemn them they see you as someone who actually cares for them and many of you know this by experience that when you when someone actually uh senses that you have a genuine concern for them, you have a great freedom in conversation. You have a great freedom in conversation. I know that my experiences when I, uh, before uh, being primarily in the church, but out in the world, uh, that the people who got the most angry were actually Christians who were living unholy lives. Generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, to be sure, and significant ones, but generally speaking, with unbelievers, there was a great freedom and a great willingness to talk and say the most hard things and then share the most personal things with you because there was a genuine sense that uh, you cared for them. And so the idea is that our speech is to be gracious, and as it is, it opens up doors for the gospel. It, it gives us opportunities that otherwise we wouldn't have, but we can never confuse that with not speaking the truth. We can never confuse graciousness with not saying the things that are the most needful to be said, which means that we can have the most gracious speech and they want to throw us off a cliff, which means we can say everything kindly and they want to rage and rage against us. But we want to make sure that, at least from our perspective, that we have said it in the best way. 
We, we, we often say, and we'll encourage one another, and I'll say it here, is that we want to make sure that they're not rejecting us, but the message, right? That it's the gospel they're rejecting, not the person. Because Christians can be rude and arrogant sometimes in how we talk, right? We, we've all been guilty of that at times. But it should never be us they're rejecting. It should be the truth that they're rejecting, Christ that they're rejecting, and that we're clear on that. And so here he says the wise person is known by that, this gracious kind of speech. And the reality is, is when we have gracious speech and a general pattern of life, it gives us opportunities and it brings advancement in life. Let me give you from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, The wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. How we say things matters. Verse 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth, and he adds persuasiveness to his lips. Again, so often it's not what we say, but it's how we say it. Now, the contrast here quickly is this in verse 12. The wise mouth, uh, the words from the mouth of the wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Consume him. The contrast is the lips of the foolish bring ruin to themselves and to others. When it's a foolish ruler, all the worse for the people under his authority are ruled by a fool. And the destruction he brings to himself isn't limited to himself. It also brings destruction and harm to the people whom he's over. And so the the consequences are multiplied. So the lips of a fool consume him, but here in the idea of, of authority, it also consumes those who are under him and brings destruction, brings havoc into the lives of those who are around them. Again, James said, a small flame sets a forest on fire, and it sets on course. It itself is set on by the fires of hell, essentially is the idea I'm paraphrasing, and it sets on course our life, the direction of our life. How often has a hasty word of anger, a word of slander, a word of impatience, a word of rudeness, bears consequences that are long-lasting and far outweigh that moment, right? We all know that. We see this happen in marriages. We see this happen in relationships so often. One said this, There are many ways that words can destroy. Sometimes a fool says something that gets him into trouble. His rash words make someone else angry, and that person destroys him. Sometimes a fool says something that ruins a relationship. She carelessly reveals something that would have been better left unsaid. But once it is said, the damage is done. There are thousands of ways for foolish words to destroy the person who utters them. In other words... To consume him. To consume him. And so we must be careful. Uh, This is especially true in the realm of social media. Is it not? Which seems designed, or at least is how it's used by people, to give a platform to every idle thought and every ill-formed argument and every obnoxious opinion and all manner of foolishness. Is Is that true? And now there's this seduction that comes with social media that says, I get to say something and then feel important because so many people are going to see it. That makes me important. And it makes somehow, by the mere fact that many will see it, it somehow makes what I say important, which is deception. It just means your foolishness is broadcast to more people. That's all. It just means more people can suffer the harm of your failure to guard your speech. It just means more damage can come. More people hearing your words does not make them more important. It just makes them have greater consequences. 
And sometimes that is forgotten. I think a humorous way to think of that is, I always find you've heard of uh, criminals who do a crime and then they post it on social media and they catch them. <laughs> you know, but, but the idea there is the seduction. It's just so seducing. It's such a draw to say it gives me such a sense of importance that for me to tell everybody something. And, and very easily it leads to unguarded speech, unwise speech. And so that obviously is a heart issue. Why do I want that? Why do I want this? What, what is the good that can come from me posting this? How will this build anyone up other than myself by posting this, by writing this? Uh, and so we have to be very careful there. And I know many of you, I, in some ways we, we see this, but many use, the, use social media for good reasons, to post verses, to post uh, things that are encouraging. But we have to be careful. It's easy to slip. It's easy in our climate, by the way, and we're going to have to end here and pick it up next week, but it's easy in our climate, particularly how do we talk about politics and our rulers? I've had to be shaped in this myself, believe me. How do we do it? How do we talk about our rulers? Do we reflect God's own instructions about how we are to relate to those who are over us, or do we reflect Tucker Carlson? And so forth. I like a lot of those things. That's not, that's not the point. The point is, is that we're followers of Christ, not Fox News. Right? And so we have to let Scripture... So how do we talk about politics? What are the things that we post? Well, we'll pick it up there next week. But the point here is this, that I remind us, is that this is really a fruit of our response to Christ. It's really a fruit of our response to Christ. As Christ is shaping our hearts as we're taking hold of our thoughts, as we're taking hold of our affections, as when we fail, we're going to him and repenting and asking him to build us back up in truth and righteousness, then it's going to affect the way that we live. It's going to affect the decisions we make where we won't keep repeating the same foolish mistakes, hopefully, but listen to the counsel of others where we will guard our mouth and our words so that they bring healing rather than destruction, so that we'll have courage in the presence of rulers and those of authority to not compromise on the truth, so that we'll have doors open of opportunity to us in all of our relationships to speak about Christ and the gospel in truth in a way that will be heard. May God work this in us as we seek to follow Christ and honor him in this world. Let me pray, and then we'll have a closing song. Father, thank you for... This your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We can all recognize where we fail in these areas and how we need forgiveness. And we need your sovereign work in our life to produce maturity in us. And we pray that we would be responsive to that work. Such an important element, Lord. We all have things that we regret, or many of us, we would have said them differently. But we thank you that with you, that's not the final word. There is mercy and there is forgiveness particularly as the body of Christ, as we live together, we bear with one another, forgiving one another, even as we have been forgiven in Christ. And so let us model that. Let us be agents of good and compassion in each other's life, of help and encouragement. May we be better and more like Christ because of the time that we spend with each other. And this is the work of your sovereign spirit. And we pray these things and we ask them, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.